You are now listening to Macrodose. Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Next week will be our first birthday, and to celebrate this, we hosted our first Macrodose live event. Thank you to everyone who came down and joined us. We had a great time, and it was nice to meet some real-life listeners. For those of you who weren't able to join, we will definitely be doing more events like this, so make sure you keep an eye out, and in the meantime, we've recorded the event. You can either listen to it here, or find a video version on our YouTube channel, at MacrodosePod. I'll save the introductions for the recording, but at the start you'll hear me thanking Natasha. Natasha is the events coordinator at Space4, who lent us their office for the evening. Space4 is a cooperative co-working and meeting space in Finsbury Park, London. They also have a great calendar of events that I suggest you check out, and we'll leave a link in the show notes. So a massive thank you to them and to our amazing panel. And now, on with the show. Right. Thanks, Natasha, and thank you, everyone, for turning up to this. It's the first um, live event we've done. Like, for the last year, we've been doing this podcast with, with an audience that, that we don't ever see. Occasionally, we sort of hear from them in various different ways, uh, for good or for ill, usually for good. Um, uh, but we're not actually seeing you as, like, real people in a room. So thank you, real people, for coming to this room. And what a nice room it is. And thank you, Natasha and uh, Space4, for letting us use it. I'd also like to thank Planet B for doing the sort of techie parts of, of producing this and... Uh, working throughout the year on making the podcast sound like well, sound nice, I think. Much to get my slightly nasal voice to sound less unpleasant to people, as far as I can tell. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, so what we want to do this evening was, was discuss the sort of question of where next for the UK economy, um, which is, which is like, I hope everyone's in a reasonably good mood <laughs> at this point, because you may not be by the end, but there will be a break, as Natasha mentioned, and there will be drinks uh, of increasingly alcoholic uh, varieties as we go on. Um, but I want to introduce the, well, I want to introduce the format. First of all, I was going to start by saying a, a few words myself on where we think we are. Open up to the rest of this panel, who I'll introduce in a second. Then we have a break, and then the sort of more general discussion and conversation, and we'll probably be finished with that after some time when everyone's fed up and wants to go to the pub or whatever you want to do, around about half past eight or something like that, I think. So that's kind of the format. Uh, for the evening. So without further ado, I will, that's such a cliche, isn't it? But without further ado, I will introduce uh, the rest of my panel, um, running along from next to me to the end. Uh, next to me is uh, Shreya Nanda, who is Chief Economist at the Social Markets Foundation, which is a think tank down the road from here, doing some, I'd like to think, increasingly interesting work, because it hasn't always, but increasingly interesting work, for example, on the cost of transportation uh, around the country um, just out earlier this week, which I thought at the very least came with a nice pretty graph and a pretty map uh, that, you can, that you can look at. It's important in this visual age to, to make do of these things. So that's Shreya. Next door to her is N- Nadia Whittam, uh, who is the MP for Nottingham Oh, God. East. It's like this brief moment of utter uh, directional confusion. MP for Nottingham East. uh, Star in Parliament, I would say, uh, if you look at the events over the last few days. Also someone who has spoken, I think, very well about the real impact of the economic crisis uh, that we've been facing. You say crisis like it's something that's quick. You know, it's over quickly. And in fact, you talk about economic crisis for like at least a decade in Britain. Actually, probably more like 15 years of this continual grind. But we'll get into that. I told you it was going to be a real uplifting um, event. And speaking of uplifting, it's Owen Jones. Permanent resident of the the Twitter uh, trending topics. And somebody who has a book that he will eventually finish and get out. 
on economics and economic policy. And here is our panel. So yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of start with a, a couple of, of introductory remarks about this and like, where is the UK economy going? It's a topic that we've ended up touching on over the last year or so. Um, for the obvious reason, it's a UK-based podcast, even though I find myself in different countries at various times. Uh, and you sort of find yourself drawn back to what's happening in Britain, partly because, you know, I was born and brought up here, and most people here are probably from Britain or at least live here, I'm guessing. I hope no one's actually travelled that distance to arrive otherwise. Um, and you find yourself drawn back to it, particularly if you're doing economics, because it is so bad. Like, it's so hilariously bad. It's, um, it's just sort of unbelievable. You have this combination of things that aren't working, all arriving in one country all at once. And these range from the really obvious stuff that, that people tend to get a bit obsessed about. I'll come on to this point, actually, because I think there's a political sort of point here, or a political economy point here, that people get obsessed about these really fairly superficial, obvious things, and they jump up and down and shout about that, and then we miss a whole load of the massive sort of structural problems that are there. One of the relatively superficial things in practice is Brexit, that it's had clearly, like, there's not much debate on this. You can try and winkle out a few people who sort of cling to, you know, it's actually going to be good eventually, uh, sort of arguments on this. But it's reasonably clear by this point, reasonably wide consensus, that even for people who thought Brexit would be a good idea, the way it's actually panned out has not really worked like that. And that has had an impact. It's had an impact on economic growth. It's had an impact on how easily we trade uh, with our closest trading partner in the EU. It's had an impact on how much we pay for various goods and services, food. Food inflation is somewhat higher here than it would otherwise be because of Brexit, because it's just harder to get food in uh, than it would otherwise have been. If people remember the business almost a year ago where, you know, what did they call it? Oh, salad Armageddon or some possibly cleverer thing than, the, than this. Well, you go to whichever supermarket and you find that there are slightly fewer tomatoes, possibly no tomatoes, possibly no green salad at all on the shelves. And this was immediately pounced. I was like, oh, God, it's Brexit, because here I am, you know, in uh, wherever you might be, France or somewhere like this, going, oh, well, look, they've still got, like, tomatoes here. Uh, and that was held up as, like, oh, this is an impact of Brexit. And it, it sort of is. The problem you had is that Ireland, the south of Ireland, was also being hit by exactly the same issue of facing these kinds of shortages. That the reason the shortage was happening is because... You know, one way or the other, right, over most of the time that this country has existed, it has not been possible to get tomatoes here in kind of January, February. Right? If you want to do that, you have to go somewhere else and bring them in. You go to Morocco or other places around the Mediterranean where you can still grow them. Places that, coming out of last year into this, were being hit by drought, were being hit by you know, floods in some places, it's massive, I mean, incredible droughts in Spain, where we actually import, Spain in particular, close to around a quarter of our fresh fruit and vegetables comes from. So the reason you are not getting things in supermarket shelves you might otherwise been able to obtain in January or February, like tomatoes and bits of salad and all this sort of stuff, is, okay, Brexit has had some impact because it meant it was harder for us sitting outside the EU to go to Morocco and say, we want first dibs on what is now a limited supply of these goods. Uh, that made life more difficult. But it wasn't the entirety of the thing. The entirety of the, the issue, the, the whole totality of what was happening was also, this is the ecological crisis appearing. So we fixate on the stuff that's actually relatively sort of clear and superficial. We fixate on things like, isn't Boris Johnson terrible? Now, Boris Johnson is kind of a terrible person in so many different ways. I mean, it's quite, you know, impressive. Um, but he's not actually the reason things aren't working. There's a similar thing with Liz Truss. You know, jump up and down and say, wasn't Liz Truss terrible? Didn't she crash the economy? Well, no, not really. She caused a huge amount of disruption in the financial markets for a brief period of time. 
uh, you know, the cost of government borrowing went soaring after Kwasi Kwarteng did his uh, mini-budget, so-called, in what, September, October last year. Um, provoked a, quite impressive, really, provoked this kind of market panic. Cost of government borrowing went up. Oh, no, isn't it terrible? It's so expensive for the government to borrow money and that sort of thing. And of course, if you look a year on, cost of government borrowing is almost exactly the same as what it was when Liz Truss did her terrible thing. The reason being is that there's actually deep structural problems here, of which Liz Truss is really only a symptom. In a certain sense, Boris Johnson is only a symptom. The deep underlying problems are in part the problem that we focus on symptoms, that we focus on the really, really short-term bits and miss out the deep institutional features, one of which is overwhelming at the minute, which is the environmental crisis is real, and it's not in the sense of this is a real thing that will happen and the science tells us this. It's a real thing that is happening immediately and disrupting how we live our lives in an immediate sense. A report from the US National Weather Authority, if I get the name right, um, out just a couple of days ago. The annual cost on their conservative estimate to the US of extreme weather events is now $150 billion a year. And you can come up with similar numbers for what's happening in Britain. And this will get worse. That is a real cost. And what you're seeing with the cost of the living crisis in Britain as everywhere else is those costs are being turned into a problem for most of us whilst at the, at the same time providing an opportunity for a few typically very large companies who can exploit shortages and disruption and generate massive profits themselves. And you can see this mechanism incredibly clearly over the last 18 months, two years really, where you've had BP, Shell and the rest report the highest ever profits, less widely known is the fact that the four biggest agribusinesses on the planet are also reporting their highest ever profits because they were able to exploit the fact that food supplies are disrupted and generate uh, from a shortage, turn it into massive profits. Because if the price goes up, it becomes harder to produce something. You can, as a massive supplier of this good that is essential but in short supply, put the price up even more, making more profit out of it. And that's the mechanism you're up against. Now, that's not a specific UK problem. That's affecting everywhere. But this is the context we're in. The specific UK bit, and I'll finish on this point because it's the one that is most easily addressed in a certain sense, is that we also have this legacy of the last 10, maybe 13 years of austerity and the extraordinary damage that has been done to, obviously, to public services. I mean, just the state of like, how people are sort of living their lives now in Britain is incredible. You can drag out, I mentioned it the other week, but the Institute for Government, which is the most, you know, the most sort of mainstream, like deliberately centrist sort of think tank you can possibly imagine. They have this hilariously grand uh, head offices uh, just around the corner from Buckingham Palace. Next door to what I was reliably told and turned out to actually be a safe house as used by MI6 for like uh, interrogating defectors and things. But anyway, it's, it's that kind of institution, right? Um, and they put out this report and they've been doing it a few years going, how are public services in Britain doing? What is the state of public services? And every year it comes about going, everything is terrible and getting worse. And the one this year was like, everything is terrible and getting worse, and the government is planning more cuts, so everything is going to get worse into the future. And you think, okay, so like, this, this is no longer like, it's no longer the Jeremy Corbyn's, if I'm allowed to mention his name, sorry, Nadia, uh, on this platform, uh, who are saying these things. It's... <laughs> It's, uh, it's actually all sorts of people far beyond the ranks of the people who've complained about austerity for the last decade, right, who are now starting to pick up on this. You then start to think, well, how much does it cost? How much does it cost to repair the damage that was done by austerity for 10 years? Another pretty, you know, pretty mainstream think tank, the Centre for Progressive Policy, as the name implies, perhaps less sort of centrist than the Institute for Government, uh, come back with, has come back with an estimate that in 2030, we need to be spending another £147 billion a year on public services. So something like 1.5% of GDP. To get back to, not to make everything massively better, to get back to basically what they were in 2010, right? 
Now, this is so far beyond, never mind this government, it's so far beyond what Labour is talking about that this is an impending catastrophe in public services. That's what we're starting to look at. Unless, for example, the Labour Party starts to turn around and get a bit more serious about addressing what ought to be, for the Labour Party, the easiest part of this general mess. Not the institutional problems, not the climate crisis, but the easy part, which is we could, be, we could get public services to kind of function as good as they were under the last Labour government. It will require money to do this. You have to talk more seriously about where that money comes from. If we're not even getting that, then I'm afraid at this point, the future prospects of the UK economy do not look particularly promising under whichever government we get. And it's up to, I think, people like us to start to say, actually, this is reaching desperation stakes, that we cannot continue like this. We do need a movement to apply the pressure that is now required to Labour and to any future government to try and make a difference on these things. But at least let's start with a reasonably clear understanding of just how bad things actually are and are likely to get into the future. And because, because hosting's a bit weird, particularly if you do quite a lengthy introduction, uh, I think the thing to do now is sort of present the same question, and I'm just going to, easiest thing to do is also run along the platform in this direction, which happily coincides with the order you were trying to uh, ask me to do earlier. So, so we'll take it in that order. And I'll go to Shreya next for her thoughts, five, ten minutes on the UK economy. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, hi, everyone. Great to be here. But I'm a senior fellow, by the way, not chief economist, so sorry to have corrected you. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Um, so yeah, there was two things I wanted to say really. One that I think, yeah, things are bad and I'll go through the ways in which I think they're bad. And then the second is that I think we can change that through policy and it's really important that we, you know, that we do that and that we don't lose sight of our ability to do that and don't become just very doomery and pessimistic. Um, so firstly, how are things bad? <laughs> the UK, I think there's, there's a couple of ways. So firstly, poor aggregate economic performance like the thing that everyone's been talking about sort of post-crisis. Um, secondly, the fact that we have a rentier economy and that works badly in a number of ways. And thirdly, um, the climate crisis, which I'll probably let other people talk about more because it's not quite so much my area of expertise. But firstly, on the UK's poor economic performance, so this is obviously attracted a lot of attention. Um, James has talked about already about some of the reasons why it's been weak, but I think I'll just run through my thoughts. So I think one is the problem of like, low demand and I think that was particularly true like 2010 to 2019 and less true like now that we had first the COVID shock and then the energy price shock and yeah I think partly that was to do with austerity and the decision not to pursue fiscal stimulus after the economic crisis and partly because of things like high wealth inequality and things like how our housing market functions that mean that like ordinary people have less money to spend and that reduces demand in the economy I think Brexit is a factor as well and the policy uncertainty that that's created and the way it's sucked in attention from other parts of government. Um, I'd also point to supply side problems. So in particular, I think, again, coming back to the housing market, and this is like a longer problem probably over decades rather than just since the financial crisis, but I'd say that essentially jobs have become more concentrated um, in our bigger cities, whereas housing hasn't followed. And so that's sort of held back our economy and our ability to grow and see prosperity. And then more recently, obviously, the shocks that we've seen so first, the pandemic and now um, energy prices and the concomitant lack of state capacity and resilience to respond to them. Secondly, I think we have uh, a rentier economy. I think this is because a lot of the changes that we went through um, in the 1980s onwards that um, liberalised the economy, this removed some barriers to generally productive economic activity, but it also removed barriers to activities which were socially useless or actively harmful. 
So partly that's the more traditional things that we think of as economic rent, so things around land and, and natural resources, but also just like uh, facilitating the rise of zero-sum economic activities. I'm thinking of like advertising, I'm thinking of lots of consulting activities, I'm thinking of um, in the finance sector, um, things which aren't really adding to the real economy. And, and we also removed some of the institutions that prevented the extraction of rent from others. And so in terms of the, the consequences of this, so economic measured economic activity has become less linked to genuine improvements in living standards. So even the growth that we have seen hasn't always led to higher living standards. Um, and secondly, I think you see this phenomenon where, yeah, you see this sort of erosion of living standards over time. So every so there's a shock, things get worse. So right now we're seeing like rents rising faster than incomes, you know, shocks to the cost of living, government debt going up as a share of GDP, but they don't come back down you know, in the good times or when those trends reverse. But as James has already said, taxes have gone up as a share of GDP despite public services increasingly being in crisis. Yeah, as I, as I just said, rents um, are going up faster than wages because of the rise in interest rates have created an opportunity for landlords to raise rents, um, even though most landlords in this country, I think, don't have mortgages on their rental properties. But when interest rates were falling over the last decade, we didn't see rents coming down and we don't expect rents to come down when interest rates go back down. So I think that that's one way in which our economy doesn't function well. And then in just in terms of the um, climate crisis, I agree with what James has said about how this is affecting our economy and causing inflation. And I think this makes it even more urgent to act and ensure that we do things to turn this around. So in terms of how we should respond in terms of policy, um, I think there are a couple of important areas. So I point to housing and transport, like investing a lot more and making it easier to build homes in our most prosperous areas, investing in the transport infrastructure to go alongside that, um, and devolving powers to city regions to ensure that local leaders have the capability to do that. Um, I think building more domestic energy capacity to allow us to respond to this energy shock and future energy shocks. And I think, yeah, public investment is a, is a key issue here. Um, we need to be ensuring that we're investing enough and in the long run, that will be really good. It will bring growth up. It will bring debt down as a share of GDP. But in the short run, um, that is inflationary and we need policies to offset that to reduce inflation. I think here, like taxes on the rich, while desirable for lots of other reasons, are less useful at reducing inflation. So we need to be thinking about other things as well, like taxes that target consumption specifically, um, rises in interest rates, that sort of thing. But yeah, I think we're... I'm optimistic that we can we can you know, raise living standards and raise growth if we take the right policy actions. I don't agree with the people who argue that we have very little ability to increase growth and we just need to accept that living standards are going to fall and taxes are going to rise for ordinary people. Um, I think this is a reactionary sentiment. So yeah, I'm optimistic, but I think if we don't do anything, things are going to keep getting worse. So we need to change how we do policy. Um... Firstly, thank you so much for having me, James. Um, I really support what Macrodose is doing. I think making economics accessible and um, understandable is really important. And I know that your podcast is something that I've benefited from, as I'm sure lots of people in the room have. Um, I wanted to take the topic of the future of the economy in two parts. So firstly, what I think is going to happen under the current trajectory and secondly, what I think should happen instead. So on, on the first part, 
you don't need me to tell you that we have an economy that basically only really works for the very wealthy few. Um, wages in real terms are lower than they were in 2008. Even with the inflation figures falling earlier this week, we still have the highest inflation in the G7. One million children in the UK are destitute, not just in poverty, but destitute. We have a situation where there are families with at least one parent in work that are having to use food banks and no child should be going hungry, not in the sixth biggest economy in the world, but that is the reality for far too many. And we have a government that whose interests lie in keeping it that way. So just to take one example, around one in five Conservative MPs are private landlords. So it's not surprising then that the Renters' Reform Bill has been delayed and watered down by backbench Tory MPs who are intent on protecting the interests of landlords. To be honest, I'm still not convinced that it will even become law, but if it does, it will still do very little to, um, to fundamentally redress the crisis in the private rented sector. So, for example, it does next to nothing to um, tackle rising rents, which are seeing my generation forking out half of their wages just to keep a roof over their head. We're also starting to hear the usual leaks of what's likely to be contained in the budget. So um, the papers are saying that the Chancellor plans to cut inheritance tax. Now, fewer than 4% of estates require any inheritance tax to be paid. So in making that cut, the Tories are nakedly acting in their own class interests and against the interests of working class people. It's taking money from the public purse, money that could be spent on our underfunded public services and is instead putting it into the pockets of the super rich. And will the super rich use that tax cut to, to help boost the economy? Absolutely not. Because we've seen time and time again, in study after study, that the myth of trickle-down economics has been debunked. No, cutting inheritance tax just allows them to hoard more wealth and more assets as inequality grows and grows. Then, on climate, the government seems to be completely determined to abandon its previous climate pledges, which, by the way, are completely inadequate anyway, um, and instead continue to tie our economy to carbon. So in the King's speech um, last week, we saw the government announce that it will turbocharge new oil and gas, um, legislating for a new annual system for awarding drilling licences. That is in no one's interests, but fossil fuel shareholders, not the planets, not the economies. It's not even going to lower bills and the Energy Secretary admitted as such herself. Even Lord Turner, who's the head of the Energy Transitions Commission, hardly some left-wing outfit given it gets funding from BP and Shell, he said, it does not make any sense for the UK to be licensing more exploration of the North Sea. Yet the Tories are intent on ploughing ahead. 
And just finally, and James has already mentioned this, but you can't ignore the impact that Brexit has had and whatever you think about the, the rights and wrongs of, um, of the decision to leave, it is affecting trade, it is costing jobs, it is impacting the economy and it will continue to do so. Um, so what we're left with is an economy that isn't likely to see meaningful growth in the near term, that will see the wealth gap grow between the rich and the poor, that will see more people in poverty and where there is a real chance that we will end up back in a recession. So on, on that cheerful note, <laughs> on to what I think should happen instead. So the Tories have completely destroyed themselves. There was a YouGov poll that came out this morning that had them on their, um, their lowest percentage since Liz Truss. Just 21% of people said that they would vote Conservative. So there's a good chance that we'll have a Labour-led government after the next election, but a lot could change. We could still lose that election. The next general election is likely to be fought on the cost of living crisis and the economy. So what I believe Labour should prioritise is investment in a green economy, which also helps to tackle inequality at the same time. So what's often referred to as a Green New Deal, something that I've been championing since I was elected. That means massive investment in renewables, eco-friendly social housing. Um, it means taking energy into public ownership. Those are all things that would tackle the climate crisis, lower bills and create jobs all at the same time. It also means recentering our economy on low carbon, socially useful work. And I think it's important that we recognise that green jobs are not just those in, you know, manufacturing wind turbines or installing loft installation. It's jobs like care work as well, work that is overwhelmingly done by women, also disproportionately done by migrant women or women of colour. Um, and giving them decent paying conditions and status would transform their lives and the lives of their families. And that's why I think that a green economy and a feminist economy actually go hand in hand. Um, we also need to invest in our public services more widely. So I mean, substantial increase in funding for councils, more money for schools and education, um, same for the NHS and for it to actually become um, a fully public service once again. And of course, properly funded full pay rises for public sector workers um, that would put money in people's pockets that they would then in turn go and spend in the local economy. And we, we can't get away from the fact that we need to increase taxation on corporations and the wealthy and make existing taxation harder to dodge. Um, even, just to take one example, even taxing income from wealth at the same rate as income from work, an idea so tame that the, the Tory Chancellor um, Nigel Lawson was in favour of it, that could raise £90 billion over five years. And think of, think of the, the public services that that could fund. But also, it's not just about increasing funds for public services. It's about, it's about redistributing wealth as well. And that is absolutely essential. 
or the gulf between the richest and the poorest in our society will continue to grow. So that's what I want to happen next for our economy. Um, Labour, the policies that Labour is offering do nod towards some of those things, like, for example, £28 billion a year in green investment by the middle of the next parliament, 100% green energy by 2030, a publicly owned energy company to invest in renewables. Those are all good policies, but I want us to be going much, much further. I want to just end by emphasising something that I think is important to bear in mind. Politicians have never delivered change for working class people out of some kind of sense of altruism. It's through the organisation and power of working class people that those concessions have been won. Whether it was the vote, the weekend, health and safety legislation, bargaining rights, working class people, trade unions, fought for those things and won. And that's why I think one of the most important demands for the next Labour government is to repeal the anti-union laws. Because if we want to change the balance of power between workers and capital in our society, strong unions are right at the heart of that. Thatcher understood that. That's why she smashed them. <laughs> and that's why we should fight for Labour to repeal not just the 2016 Trade Union Act, but every single anti-trade union law that she introduced. Um, and that would have an absolutely transformative effect on our economy and on the power of working class people within it. A uh, big honour to be here, in the great words of Holly Willoughby. Hi, how are you? Um, are you okay? Are you okay? Sorry. Are you okay? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's great honour. James has done such a great job with Macrodet and the whole team. Obviously, it's a big collective effort, as all things uh, should be. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is quite interesting about the last few years is how British exceptionalism has gone up in a big uh, puff of smoke. Um, British exceptionalism was always based on illusions, this kind of contrast between here and the continent that that's where kind of big convulsions and and and... and demagoguery and all these sorts of things happen and this is this kind of oasis of calm and tranquility. A lot of it was to do with the fact we had a premature revolution. We beheaded our king about 150 years before the French got round to it. We didn't have a big mass communist movement, things like that. Um, but obviously we have a great history of struggle and, and so on. But there's no question that since 2016 we've had a very specific form of um, chronic instability. We've had about a third now of our post, 30, just over 30% of our post-war prime minister since 2016, without a change in government. Um, which is astonishing, if you think about it. And I think that has so much to do, that political turmoil, with the most important statistic um, to understand the turmoil we've gone through, which is the longest squeeze in living standards since the Battle of Waterloo. And not everything arises from that one basic fact. It's predicted that by 2026, the average worker will be worse off than they were in 2008, which is unprecedented, of course, in, in, in modern um, history. That is structural. It, it, it's baked into our system. It predates, actually, that crisis, the financial crash of 2008. From 2004 onwards, 
um, the living standards of the bottom half began to stagnate and of the bottom third uh, began to decline. And that was obviously under a, a Labour government. Um, and, and when I say each of our prime ministers, in terms of the turmoil since 2016, have been felled so much by that structural cost of living crisis, you know, David Cameron, the research is very compelling that well, obviously you get 52% of the electorate voting for something. There's a coalition with different reasons, but very compelling academic research shows that the cost of living crisis did so much to get it over that 50% level. Theresa May, the general election of 2017, again, the cost of living crisis meant that lots of people became more susceptible to Labour's message. That terminally, that was fatal for her premiership. Um, Boris Johnson, I mean, even um, uh, despite, obviously, Partygate, but the cost of living crisis was already becoming very acute, obviously, um, accelerating under his premiership, and that fed into the collapse in the Tories' popularity. But, uh, I mean, obviously, Liz Truss, um, who was, of course, famously outlasted by a lettuce. Um, but she, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, the, the, the cost of living crisis was accelerated under her because of a sudden surge in mortgages and private rents, which people often neglect. And again, Rishi Sunak, I mean, the most important reason why his premiership is doomed is the cost of living crisis. So it really is just fueling our instability in lots of very obvious ways. And, you know, what, what's interesting about our economic model is... People often forget that neoliberalism and the Thatcherism had a very populist incarnation, which was the idea of liberating the individual, that the individual would become free, freed from, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the imposition of the states and collectivism. Um, but what was promised as freedom became lived as insecurity. And of course, insecurity isn't freedom um, at all. Uh, so housing is obviously a very striking example of that, right to buy, you know, in the short term, had a big impact in terms of the Tory electoral coalition of the time. But of course, where were their kids supposed to, to live, those who benefited? And four in 10 of the um, houses sold off under right to buy are now let out by private landlords charging twice the rent. The fact that uh, most people in poverty in Britain are in work, in working households, earning their poverty, so to speak. Um, the higher and fire work nature of work, which defines the working experience um, of particularly a, a younger workforce. I'm using younger um, inclusively um, for selfish reasons. Uh, no, but millennials, because millennials now, I mean, millennial was a synonym, a synonym for youth. Millennials now, the oldest are 42. Um, but actually, the economic insecurity that defined their lives in their 20s often still defines their lives now. They've hit their 40s and they've had, they've had kids. Um, and, and I think what's also interesting is the way even our opponents have conceded their own failures without enough attention, even by us often. So take Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak is the most right-wing Tory leader since Michael Howard, I would say, who's significantly to the right of Boris Johnson, who tried to fuse a kind of form of economic interventionism in a Tory way to shore up his electoral coalition. Um, Rishi Sunak increased corporation tax. And what was the basis for him increasing corporation tax? He said that contrary to George Osborne's claims, that if you cut corporation tax, it will more than pay for itself because you'll increase your revenues, that instead these big companies just sat on the money that they'd saved. They didn't invest it in the economy. You know, a huge concession by our opponents in terms of their economic model and their economic policies. Now, what I think in terms of 
you know, what comes next and why I have some optimism, it doesn't come from the Labour leadership because they suck. But it comes from the, the prospect of struggle from below and what happens next. Because, um, I mean, if we think now in terms of what Labour are saying, I mean, I remember that when... Keir Starmer came up with the well, sorry, when he came came out and supported the two um, uh, the benefit cap uh, for families, which drives hundreds of thousands of children into poverty, the two child benefit cap, and you know this was obviously described as tough choices, and tough choices are obviously always described um, uh, as 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 not as emptying the pockets of of the poor. That's a tough choice. It's never increasing taxes on the rich. That's never described in our political environment as a, as a tough choice. So, you know, when Rachel Rees rules out a wealth tax, she underlines the political cowardice of the opposition because she says, you know, I mean, as they caught big business and so-called smoked salmon and scrambled eggs offensive, um, and she, you know, she, 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 the argument there is Labour have to be obsequious to big business. And actually, they don't just base that on and the arguments about Corbynism, actually a lot of them are obsessed with 2015 and Ed Miliband, who they regard as the original sin in terms of what happened to New Labour and destroying that project, um, which is blighted by the evidence because they think that he, he lost because he was too tough on big business. That's their argument. The polling after 2015 showed 42% of voters had considered Labour too soft on big business. 22% thought it was too tough. But that in the, the kind of Labour, the leadership, the people who run it, that's their their view. But, you know, for example, take a wealth tax, Reeves rebuts it by saying she has no spending plans that requires to raise £12 billion worth of money. This with the NHS falling apart, record waiting lists um, with an ageing population and obviously the crisis in social care uh, piling more pressure on it. I mean, that alone, let alone crumbling infrastructure um, and all the various interlinking social crises uh, that we have. Now, I think what's interesting, and this is why I just talk about struggle and what that means for the economy, because Labour's betting their house on a magic fairy, otherwise known as securing the highest economic growth um, in the G7. And since the advent of Thatcherism, Britain has been afflicted by weak growth that is inequitably distributed. So the much demonised post-war economic model um, and the 60s was the highest growth we got since the war. And that's important to say because Sometimes the argument would be, well, we had post-war reconstruction and all the rest of it. Well, actually, we, we had rebuilt the economy in that sense by the late 40s, early 50s. The 60s had higher economic growth in the 50s, and that's when we had strong trade unions, higher taxes on the rich, nationalisation, and strong um, intervention in the economy. But since that, I mean, Thatcherism was argued, um, uh, you know, the, the claim of Thatcherism that this rebuilt, saved Britain from being the sick man of Europe, but what actually happened in the 80s is the average growth was slightly lower than the average growth of the 70s. And the 70s is regarded as the, the abyss of post-war economic performance. But the difference between the 80s and the 70s is the growth of the 80s was less equitably distributed than that of the 70s. In the 90s, we had less economic growth on average than the 80s. In the 2000s, we had less economic growth on average than the 90s. And in the 2010s, we had almost the same very low average growth, again, less equitably distributed. Thatcherism, you know, it's astonishing. Well, it's not astonishing. The reason it, 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 it remains so dominant and hegemonic despite its failures is because the vested interests are so entrenched and powerful because the economic performance of Thatcherism is so abysmal even on its own terms, which is low economic growth and stagnant um, and, and poor increases 
in living standards. And the reason that I'm optimistic about what happens next isn't because Labour are going to do anything uh, transformative. Their last, in fact, if I was going to be optimistic and not just like them off all the time, the last transformative po policy package in theory that Labour has is on workers' rights and trade union rights. Although recently the... Um, uh, the shadow minister in charge of the New Deal for working people. What's his name? Um, Manchester MP. He resigned. The first to resign over Gaza. Huh? Um, Imran Hussain. Yeah, Imran Hussain. Yeah, he was the. Yeah, he was the. Oh, Bradford, sorry. He was the first to resign um, and he was the, the, guard, the custodian of it. Angela Rayner was, you know, she's someone who's, 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 you know, whatever accommodations she's made has tried to make, you know, improving trade union rights and workers' rights something she's committed to. And that's something Labour have said that they will, will do, but we'll see how watered down it is and all the rest of it. But the, the reason I'm optimistic and linked to that is what I think will happen, and this is why, you know, they're stuck in a kind of 1997... Well, I don't even think it's 1997 they're stuck in. It's kind of 2005 Blairism. It's Blairism when Blairism, you know, was kind of obsessed with, like, invading other countries and marketising public services. Um, because what New Labour did in 1997 when they came to power was you had increasing, uh, you had growth at the time um, um, and you had rising living standards and it was based on sand. It was an unsustainable financial model which collapsed spectacularly in 2008. Um, but they could keep the social peace because they had economic growth to do and they did mild economic reforms which was sufficient to keep the social peace. Also, the trade union movement at the time had been so crushed. And I think the difference now is... We're in a period of total crisis. We don't have the rising growth and rising living standards. So what will happen is the Tories will be kicked out. People's expectations will be raised by the fact the Tories have been evicted. But then what happens two years in when you have a Labour government that hasn't increased taxes on the rich in order to pay for the things that need to be fixed in this country, from housing to infrastructure, living standards, all the rest of it. And people, um, uh, you know, two years in, uh, young people are still, you know, a big chunk of their pay packet is going on a combination if they went to university, half of them on student, student fees and then on private rent. Uh, nurses haven't seen their living standards being uh, re re returned to where they were by any stretch. Um, you know, and you haven't seen a reversal in terms of that structural decline in living standards. I think people will organise and place demands on those in power. And I think we have more space under Labour government to do that because the Tories are less likely to buckle. And I just think just finally on that, it might seem not relevant, but I think it is. I mean, you might have noticed how Jess Phillips resigned yesterday over Gaza. And people were like, why is this right winger resigning over Gaza? And people a lot of, are quite understandably cynical because after 2000, and in her constituency after the Iraq war, went to the Lib Dems. Um, so you can see maybe why she's kind of um, worried. But a lot of people just very cynical about it. But I looked at that and thought, well, that was she was scared of pressure, wasn't she? She was scared of pressure from below. That's what spooked her. And I think that we, will, we have a far more politicised, particularly millennials and Gen Z, than the younger generations were in the 90s because of their lived experience of economic insecurity. We have actually a resurgent labour movement, which we didn't have in the 90s. And I think they'll put demands on the Labour government where we'll be in a better position to force them to buckle on issues ranging from tax and housing to the rest. Because Keir Starmer is going to come to power very unpopular. He's a very unpopular opposition leader. They're only going to win because the Tories have imploded in the most spectacular fashion. So he'll have very little goodwill. And I think as well, he's someone who panics and buckles under pressure, which we can see he does from the right. But I think if we build strong enough mass movements, and I think there's the, 
capacity to do that, then we can force economic demands on a Labour leadership, which is politically weak and pretty mediocre. Um, and I think that's where the optimism should come from. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.